Good job, sir, Sean, fighting through those technical difficulties. Sersha is a very talented, gifted young lady. We're fortunate to have her here. Amen. Appreciate that. When I, and when I was in high school, I was in uh, a play. It was called Hello, Dolly. For the old people, you might know Hello, Dolly. Probably schools still do it. I was one of the waiters in the cafe where Dolly came in, and they even gave me a couple of lines, and I got to dance a little bit, because we were happy that Dolly was coming. So I always enjoyed acting, and uh, then when I gave my heart to the Lord, and I joined the church, Seventh-day Adventist Church, I lived in San Diego, and within a year, Easter was rolling around, and somebody put together a drama for Easter, and somehow I got involved with that. And we did five performances, and we built out the stage and uh, makeup and costumes and the whole thing. And it was actually the very first VHS tape that I ever bought when somebody recorded it, and I had to buy the tape of my own performance, which I always thought was kind of odd that they charged me for that. But I looked back at it, and boy, it was terrible. I never should have watched it. Uh, which is one reason why I don't listen to my sermons, because I don't, I don't want to hear myself or see myself. So when I joined the church and we did this drama, I started hearing some people say that they didn't think that drama was appropriate in the church, that, there, that the church was no place for drama, the church was no place for skits, that the church was no place for any sort of acting out anything. And I thought, well, that's strange, because... Um, I couldn't see any reason why not, depending on what the drama was, depending on what the skit was. The material should tell you if it's appropriate or not, not the heading of what it is. And then as I read the Bible, I thought, well, man, the Bible's full of drama. What are you talking about? You don't want to see any drama in church. There's so much drama in the Bible that some of the best movies that have ever been made are movies about the Bible. They're full of dramatic stories. There's there's love, there's murder, there's lust, there's family conflict, there's deception, there's lying, there's tears. It sounds like it's a soap opera or a novella on Telemundo. I mean, that's the Bible. It's very dramatic. God, God often, when he saw situations happening, he wanted it dramatized for the people. He wanted something acted out so that they would understand that he was very serious about what he was saying. He wasn't messing around. Think about it. Moses comes down from, the, from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the Ten Commandments engraved by the finger of God. And when he sees the people doing a different kind of acting out, he takes those two tablets and he smashes them. That is drama. Isaiah was told to walk naked and barefoot through Jerusalem for three years. I don't know if I could get away with that one. It's in Isaiah chapter 20, if you don't believe me. God told Hosea, 
to marry a prostitute to show that the people of Israel had cheated on him. So God told Hosea to marry Gomer, who was a prostitute. There was a living, acting, dramatic act to prove that God meant what he was saying. Jesus told many parables, stories that were acted out in words. He didn't just say, and so you ought to obey God and you ought to love God because God is love. He told stories, word dramas. A father had two sons, and one of them took off, and then he was, he was feeding these pigs. That's drama. A man built a house on the sand, and when the rains came, the house came tumbling down. That's drama. And there was probably somebody sitting there where Jesus was talking was saying, well, I don't think there's any place for drama and stories in what this young man is telling us. He didn't care. He was giving you the truth. So in our focus today, we're going to talk about one of the major prophets. His name was Ezekiel. And God sent Ezekiel to school, the school for the performing arts. God is going to take Ezekiel himself and turn him into a living exhibition. So as we continue our walk through the words, for those of you who might be new here, I challenged us at the beginning of the year to read through the Bible in the, in the period of 52 weekly segments, and in this segment, this week and next week and the next week, it's Ezekiel, which is a very heavy, serious book. And honestly, as I'm reading it, it's tough to get through because it just keeps repeating the same thing. And then after those three weeks, then we basically move into the New Testament and we're on the home stretch. And in December, the last week, we can, yeah, can make it, say we made it. So we come to one of the major prophets, Ezekiel, which means God will strengthen, or God is my strength, God's strength. There's four major prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. Major prophets meaning they wrote big books. Then there's 12 minor prophets, not that they're less important, just means they wrote small books. They kind of had something to say, and they said it and got it done with. They didn't mess around with 52 chapters or, you know, 66 chapters like Isaiah. Just say it, Isaiah. Get it over with, will ya? So we're going to start three weeks on Ezekiel. And uh, it was a challenge. So if you turn, no, not yet. Get your Bibles ready. I see my own words. I think I mean different things with my words. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I'm reading it to you within your hearing. I like when people say that. Ezekiel says, In my 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. So he's giving us a historical context. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, 
So he was a priest before God laid on him this gift of prophecy. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of, I don't know if it's Buzzy or Buzzy or Boozy, I don't know. By the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians, there the hand of the Lord was on him. So he's laying down the foundation. This man was 30 years old, so he received his call the same time as Jesus was baptized, which is interesting. You'll see parallels between Ezekiel and Jesus. In fact, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man over 80 times in the four Gospels. Ezekiel is called the Son of Man over 90 times. So many people think that Jesus was calling himself the Son of Man so that his Jewish listeners would relate that to the the message of Ezekiel. He's saying the same thing that Ezekiel said. He's calling himself like a prophet, like Ezekiel. You also see the Son of Man some in, in Daniel and in Revelation twice. So he's laying this down in his 30th year. He was in Babylon by the Kibar River. Nobody knows exactly where that was, but he was one of the exiles who was taken away. Now, Jeremiah wrote, still in Jerusalem, but still with a message from God. Ezekiel's telling us, I'm in Babylon. God laid this message on me when I was 30. It was in the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, and the word of the Lord came to me, and the hand of the God was on me. So that's chapter 1, the first few verses. He's saying, this is how this came to me. I didn't want it. I was minding my own business. I'm a priest. But see, he has no temple like there was in Jerusalem. So he's doing priestly duties without the temple. But he's just, you know, he's, he's just a man minding his own business, doing his work. And then God lays this on him. So the Kibar River is mentioned eight times, all in the book of Ezekiel. It's somewhere in Babylon. And all that we know about Ezekiel is found in his own book. He was among the Jews exiled to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, and there he received his call to be a prophet. We learn from chapter 24 that he was married, and when his and God says, and your wife's going to die, and when your wife dies, I don't want you to mourn over her. I want you to walk around without mourning as a sign. So even then, when his own wife dies, God says, I don't want you to mourn about it. That's in Ezekiel 24. We know from chapter 3 that he had a house that he lived in, so probably a lot of the people in Babylon weren't treated as slaves. They had homes. They lived. They worked. They just, it wasn't their homeland. And some of you might be dispersed from your native homeland, and even though you might be working here and so on, you miss your home. So I doubt if these people, if all of these people said, you know, this is really great, I'm in Babylon, and they're probably, they're missing home. How can we sing in the land of our captives? One of the Psalms says. He was of the priestly family and therefore was eligible to serve as a priest. And more than any other prophets, including Hosea and Jeremiah, he was directly involved in the drama that God laid on him. Chapter 2 says, part that uh, my brother Matt read earlier, it says, He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. And as he spoke, the Spirit came to me and raised me to my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen 
or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns and all around you are all around you, and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say, or be terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. So God warns him. I'm sending you out to people, and I want you to know they're like scorpions, they're like briars, they're like thorns. He must have used the word rebellious like about five times in that passage. I am sending you to rebellious people, and whether they listen to you or not, I want you to give the message that I'm telling you to give, because I have called you. I have put my hand on you. So don't ever think that anybody was out there saying, me, me, I want to be a prophet, me, I'd like to be a prophet. The prophets were usually hated sometimes stoned, sometimes killed. That's why Jesus said a prophet is without honor in his own country. He didn't probably want that gift either in a way. He had been a priest, and now after five years of living there in Babylon, God lays his hand on him and says, no longer will you just be a priest, but you're going to be a prophet. You're going to be my mouthpiece. You're going to speak for me to these people and tell them that they're rebellious and they've rebelled against me and that Jerusalem's going to fall and that the nation that you once, once thought you were will never be back the way it was again. So it's not a very happy message. If Ezekiel showed up at your house for potluck, you might go, oh man, Ezekiel's here. All right, come on in. There's a plate. Ezekiel's here. Well, maybe he'll eat quickly and then leave. We can only hope. Then he's like, hey, what do you got for dessert? Oh, he's staying. You see, because in times of crisis, crisi, crises, crises, thank you, in times of crises, God sends prophets to give a message to his people. And if you've been around the Seventh-day Adventist church and you know their history, then you might know the history of Ellen White. It's a rich history of God laying a call on someone. The Creator God, the Sovereign God, which means He's the supreme power over all, decided that He wanted to be known and He wanted to be acknowledged. Over 65 times in this book, in Ezekiel it says, God says, then they will know that I am God. That's what he wants them to know. You have rebelled against me, your nation is destroyed, and I want you to know that still, even though your nation's been destroyed, even though that you're living in an exiled land, even though things aren't going the way you want, I am still God, and you're not. Now, if we could turn to chapter 4, we will see Ezekiel sent to the school for performing arts. Ezekiel chapter 4, por favor. Is it all right if I read my Bible in church? Not so sure today. You're looking a little puny. You're looking a little weak. Can you say amen, preacher? There you go. I've got to wake you guys up. I have something in store for you in like five minutes or so. Maybe a little bit more. So don't, don't leave. 
chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I'm reading from a New International today. Now, son of man, take a block of clay, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it. Erect siege works against it. Build a ramp up to it. Set up camps against it. And put battering rams. Hey, there's those trucks again. Put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan. Place it as an iron wall between you and the city. And turn your face toward it. It will be under siege and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the people of Israel. Then lie on your left side. See, God's a director in this play. Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear the sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, you will bear the sin of the people of Israel. After you have finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the people of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Turn your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and with bared arm prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. Kind of an odd thing for God to say. This is the first of a series of symbolic one-man dramas where Ezekiel acts out the future destruction of Jerusalem and the exile. His audience, who were the Jews in exile, are still tied by feelings and family back to their homeland. They probably think when they get back, they're going to go back and the temple will be there and everything will be the way that it once was. And God wants them to know it will never be the same again. So these dramatic acts were arresting and compelling ways of communicating God's words of doom and judgment upon Jerusalem. And that's why I say this is not an easy book to read, and it's not an easy book really to preach. And he even said in verse 3 that these things that you're going to do will function as a sign to the house of Israel. He wants to warn the people. So Israel, or Ezekiel, was instructed to draw on a tile. Yours might say brick or clay tablet. I looked up that word. It's the same word. It's only used like eight times in the Bible. And it's the same word where Pharaoh said, let the Hebrews make tiles or bricks without straw. So like five times it's used in the story of the Hebrews making their bricks without straw. So it's some sort of tile or brick. That's why the translations, this one I think says tile. The other, or this one says a block of clay. The other one I was reading said tile. And some of them in prayer meeting when we ran over this, they say brick and tile and so it's an interesting word. So he said to Ezekiel, I want you to draw on this tile. I want you to show this as the final act and the final attack on the city of Jerusalem. So I want you to draw the city of Jerusalem. And then I want you to write on this tile. And I want you to 
build a model of it. And I, it's kind of like a toy, Jerusalem. And then I want you to draw a wall of siege, S-I-E-G-E, around it. To, to besiege a city meant that an enemy would come up and set up camp and just surround it, cut off their food, cut off their water, and in many cases, wait them out. Wait them out for weeks, wait them out for months, wait them out for years until they were ready to surrender. So some people would surrender right away because, all right, well, they cut off our food and water, we can die here or we can just surrender. So they would surround it. This is what he's illustrating to them. He says, build a siege wall to build ramps because they would build up ramps and then they would just climb up the ramps and go over the wall into the city. So he told them to build ramps up to it and he acts out the destruction which would literally soon take place. So here God is showing them through Ezekiel that the people who love the city of Jerusalem, your city is soon going to be destroyed because you have not repented. So then he takes an iron skillet or a piece of iron and, and he sets it between himself and the city. And this skillet symbolizes a separation between God and his people. This is not God's desire, but it's what must take place because of sin. And then in the second act of this drama, the prophet bears the guilt and the burden of Jerusalem and Israel one day for every year of their sin. So for much of the day, he wouldn't lay there for 390 days total. He had to get up every day, of course, to eat and to live. But he laid there for a few hours every day. He probably went to the same place in the town square and laid on his left side for 390 days to represent the sins of Israel. And then he turned over on his right side for 40 days to, to illustrate the sins of Judah. And in chapter 4, verse 9, God says, I even want you to eat differently during this time. I'm going to give you this recipe for this really healthy bread, and you're just going to eat little bits of bread and water. I want you to even show by what you're eating and drinking that it's not normal. In fact, if any of you like or eat Ezekiel bread, how many here know what I'm talking about, Ezekiel bread? Mm-hmm. I see your hands. It's sometimes called on the label Ezekiel 4-9 bread. It's very good. It's in the freezer at Publix. In fact, I have coupons for everybody. No, I don't. But wouldn't you... See, now I want somebody perks up. Free stuff. 20 cents off. Buy one, get one. Woo! You know, I don't know if I've used this joke on you before. I think I made this joke up. But a lot of the kids today, they talk about, you'll see it on uh, social media, Y-O-L-O, -O, YOLO. I don't know if you say YOLO or you just spell it out. You only live once, you know that one? But I'm more interested in BOGO, buy one, get one. So that shows you that I've aged, that I'm not trying to only live once. I'm trying to buy one, get one. At uh, It's not that funny, is it? I thought it, in, in my mind, I thought that was very clever. See, as you age, you're not interested in you only live once. You're interested in the buy one, get ones. Where was I? Publix, Ezekiel bread. So if you go to Publix in the freezer, they have Ezekiel 4-9 bread. And the recipe comes right here. He says, this is God talking. Take wheat and barley, 
beans and lentils, millet and spelt. Now, different translations will use different ways of saying that. Put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. So, if you want a very healthy, God-given bread, Ezekiel 4-9 bread, it's at Publix, tell them I sent you. They might give you that two-for-one that we've been talking about. Speaking of acting it out, now this is very interesting. God used Ezekiel to act out something. God used Ezekiel and sent him to the performing arts school. So I want you to know that I believe in the performing arts, and I thought you might understand this better if you saw it acted out today. So I'm looking for my young acting friend, Peter. Yes! Can you guys say, hi, Peter? This is Peter Konev. He's the smartest Ukrainian-Russian boy I know who's eight years old. Are you eight? Eight. Come over here. I didn't have a... um, Have a seat. I didn't have a clay tile. So he's going to act it out. So, there's your... So, he says to Ezekiel, draw a map of the city of Jerusalem. Then draw a siege wall around it and put ramps building up to it to show how Jerusalem has disobeyed me. Well, that's pretty good. Can you show the people? Now. Now lay on your left side. For 390 days. We'll come back. And Maria, follow that recipe for the bread. Make the bread, come in every day, give him the bread and the water. And so you've lied on your left side for 390 days. Then, for the sins of of Judah, lie on your right side for 40 days. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Conan. That's it. Let me have my pen. Here, you can have the pen. That's better than a buy one, get one. So you see, I just sent Peter to the school for performing arts. So when he's a big hot shot in Hollywood someday, you saw it right here. You saw his first acting role when he heard that applause. All at once, his mind was opened up, you see. And he'll be that actor who goes to Hollywood but won't work on the Sabbath. So any movie that they're making from Friday night to Saturday night, he won't act. And they'll film around him, and he'll be a big star. And it's all because of me. (laughs) But I'm not bragging or anything. I'm being humble. So he has them lie, like Peter did, to illustrate the sins of the northern kingdom of Israel. And there's some discussion, nobody's quite sure what the 390 means versus the 40, because exactly it wasn't 390 and it wasn't exactly 40, but be that as it may. He's demonstrating by performing this art thing in front of everybody. Imagine what that was like for him to go 390 days in a row and lay on his left side 
for an hour or five hours or some, some amount of time. He didn't just stay there. And then, and then on the 391st day, when you go to watch him, he's on his right side. You're like, whoa, what happened? Because this is for the sins of Judah. But you see, God is long-suffering. But there is a limit to his patience, and that's really the message of Ezekiel. He says, there will be a time when God says enough is enough. And when God says it's enough, then you know that something is about to happen. So he was showing them that for Israel, for Jerusalem, he's had enough. He says, you have wandered away from me. You have been rebellious for too long. And it's very interesting. If Jerusalem is the city that God loves, I mean, he loves the whole world, but I think really God did have a special relationship with Jerusalem. When Jesus rode to the crest of the city before he rode down in it, it's one of the few times that it says he cried. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you together like a mother hen gathers her chicks. That's the love that God feels for the city of Jerusalem. So when God says to these people, I'm going to destroy, I'm going to allow this city to be destroyed, it tells me that God would rather see his land devastated, the city of Jerusalem ruined, his temple destroyed, and his people killed and exiled than to have these same people give false witness to the non-believers. And judgment, as the Bible says, begins with the house of God. He would rather have all of this destroyed than have these people say, I am a follower of God, and here's the way a follower of God is acting. He's saying, my people won't act like that. You see, that's when judgment starts. So even though Ezekiel's message was focused on Israel itself as a holy people and a holy temple, the holy city and the holy land, by defiling these things, they had rendered themselves unclean. And they had defiled the temple, the city, and the land. And so God is saying, I must withdraw from you. He's showing them that by this acting out, performing arts of Ezekiel. But you see, God is also a faithful God to his own covenant. And his desire to save was so great that he would soon revive his people once more. He would soon shepherd them and cleanse them and reconstruct them and overwhelm all the forces and powers arrayed against them. And he would display his glory among the nations and restore the glory of his presence in the holy city. So Ezekiel's message is a message of God's saving grace to the world, from sending his people into exile to salvation through his son. God has this grand design of redemption. So the cross, if you were to say that God doesn't believe in drama, think about the cross. That's the most dramatic thing that God has ever done, to allow his son to be nailed to a cross to show the results and the hideousness and the ugliness of sin. So Ezekiel pronounces judgment on Israel, but he also provides that he will redeem his people. Now next week we're going to talk about in Ezekiel 28 where there's this vision that Ezekiel has about the adversary of God. Ezekiel 28. 
And then the next week, we're going to talk about the revival of God in Ezekiel 37 with the Valley of Dry Bones. Now, I know there's some good songs associated with the Valley of Dry Bones, so maybe we ought to pull those out and find those. I don't know that, but I've heard them. Other people sing them, as you could tell by that one song that I played today that I had forgotten the tempo of the song. So God didn't exile the Israelites to punish them. Because God is not interested in punishment for punishment's sake. He wants them to see the errors of their way, how far they have fallen away from Him. He wants to bring them to humility to see themselves in relation to this holy God. And after centuries of warnings and prophetic messages and invasions of people, God decided that more significant action was needed and He exiles them from the promised land. And you and I might sometimes find ourselves in this predicament as well, feeling exiled from God, feeling distant from God, feeling confused, not understanding why the things that are happening are happening, waiting for God to show us something to bring some sense and sensibility to it. And even in this story, Ezekiel had been there in Babylon for five years before God touched him with the gift of prophecy, which he didn't want. But that, for those five years, he might have been saying, God, what are you doing? Why am I here? What's going on? When will we get to return? So you might find yourself in these times waiting for God to show you something, to show you some way that you can make sense of the situation that you're in. So the book of Ezekiel reminds us to seek the Lord in the dark times when you feel lost, to examine your lives, and then to align yourselves with God. Now oftentimes we want to stay exactly where we are. We don't want to change, but we want God to bless us where we are. Or we'll say, God, if you will bless me now, then I will follow you, as opposed to God, I will follow you. And I know in following you, there is the blessing. You see, we too, like these people, can be a rebellious people, an obstinate people, hanging on to ourselves instead of letting self go and turning to find God. And it all has to do with, do you see, do you know God? Because if you just see rules and regulations, that's easy to get burdened down with those. But if you see God, if you know God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent, Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life. To know you, God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So to know God is to love God. To know God is to allow yourself to be changed into His likeness. And if you only look at yourself and your surrounding people, it leads to this sense of selfishness and rebelliousness. So what we really need is a revival. Revival is, as one author said, an invasion from heaven that brings a conscious awareness of God. It's heaven coming down to our level because we can't get up to Him. Revival is the sovereign work of God in which He visits His people and He restores them and He releases them into the fullness of His blessing. So if you want to live a life where you're fully alive, 
Come to Jesus. Come back to Him. Revive us again, O Lord. Help us to turn from our ways, from our exiled ways, from our rebellious ways. Help us to learn from the performing arts what it is you want us to see. Let's not just see a man lying on his left side and then a man lying on his right side. Let's say, what does this represent? This is a rebellion of God's people. We knew God. We are His special people. And we have turned away. We need to cast out the spirit of worldliness and make God's love triumph in our hearts and in our minds. Revival is the people of God returning to their first love. Revelation 2. The message to the Ephesian church. God says, this I hold against you. You have lost your first love. So if you ever... I have often said that to married couples when they're talking about their marriage falling apart or things are tough. I'll say, what was it that attracted you to your mate at the very beginning? What did you used to love about them? What, what down deep underneath all of that stuff do you, do you still love or do you remember that you love? See, you return to what you first loved. You return and find your your beginning, your center. You find that kernel of truth and hang on to that and then allow that to grow. So he says that in Revelation, what it, uh, this is what I hold against you, that you have forgotten your first love because that's the heart of revival. So in Ezekiel, he's saying, you guys have totally forgotten me. That's why it says 65 times, then you will know that I am God because that's what God wants you to know. He's God. He loves you. He created you. And He's walking each of us through this process of redemption, of taking us from where we are to where we should be in His kingdom growth. So don't settle for living in a land of exile. Don't settle for eating the unclean things of Babylon. Return to the true worship of the true God that you may know that He is God. And ultimately, that He loves you. And that's the most dramatic thing you could ever know. If you think about drama, drama would be that after 70 years, God let the exiled people who wanted to return back to Jerusalem. And then the biggest drama of all was that Lord Jesus left the throne room of heaven and came down and was born in a manger. That's drama. That's acted out salvation story. And imagine on that night how many people were surrounded, heavenly beings were surrounding that manger, both good and bad beings around him. And then the drama was that he lived 30 years, was baptized, and heaven opened up, and the, the Spirit came down like a dove. That's drama. And then this same Jesus had a ministry for three years, and then he allowed himself to be nailed to a cross. That's drama. And then three days later, resurrected. When they went, the stone was rolled away. That's drama. And now you are part of the drama. And your whole life is an acting out call of God to show what a person who has allowed his spirit into their heart can live and look like. You are the walking drama. You are the bulletin of God's work. 
we are held up before the universe. His character is seen in you and I. That's the drama. God sends you to the performing arts school, imbued and filled and directed by the Holy Spirit. So may you find out what your part in this mission is. May you be his hands, his feet. May you be his thespian. May you be an actor. May you be filled with his words and his grace. God bless you this week. Que Dios te bendiga siempre. Amen.